This episode of Unspooled is brought to you by the human algorithm. What is the human algorithm? Well, it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a weekly podcast that answers the question of what to watch on Netflix with the human element, where you have people like Ellen Page, Mary J. Blige come in and tell you in 10 minutes-ish what they would watch right now if they were you. You get to be guided by your friend, Ellen Page. Even if she's not on the couch with you, she can say, hey, go over there. Here's what I love. So this is a super fun podcast where you just get these recommendations from people you love on Netflix, people who work for Netflix, people who just know the inner creepy creaking lines that connect all of the films in there and know what you want to watch because they know everything about you. And since it's 10 minutes long, it's just short. It's shorter than would take you to browse around and decide what you want to watch on your own. So I would recommend subscribing right now to The Human Algorithm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you find your podcasts, and think about what you would recommend. The year is 1935, and today's movie comes with a sanity clause. Amy, you can't fool me. There's no sanity clause. There is. The movie, A Night at the Opera. Welcome to Unspooled. Paul is going to be joining us in a second, but it is me, Amy Nicholson, right here at the front because I beat him back from South by Southwest. Ha ha ha. So I have the studio to myself for just a millisecond. So let's talk about last week's episode. Let's talk about Saving Private Ryan. You know what surprised me? Uh, When Paul and I sat down, we gave each other this look of like, oh no, because we both quietly thought that we are the one person who was going to be a major Saving Private Ryan bummer. And then we both realized to our relief that we both were a little bit mixed on Saving Private Ryan. And then we put that episode out into the world and oh my God, there are a lot of people who also agreed with us. This has been kind of weird and cathartic because it has been such a trope for so long, like the wrong film won. Why didn't Saving Private Ryan win the Best Picture Oscar? And you know what? Maybe it really didn't deserve to. And maybe we're all finally with like 20 years of distance being able to say that out loud. I don't know. We'll see. Um, We've been getting like just tons of really interesting tweets and feedback. Here's one that I really liked that just came in from Graham Skipper. He is a filmmaker. I adore him. Graham said that he took his veteran grandpa to go see Saving Private Ryan on opening day and that it was the first movie that his grandpa had seen in a theater since Reagan. And in the very silent part of the ending, right when it was all over, his grandpa stood up and he just said, that was too long. I got to pee. So, Graham, thank you for that. I'm glad to keep your grandfather's story alive. I feel like I know him a little bit just through that tweet. Thank you very much. Kyle McGrant at A Bridge Too Farce wrote in and gave a very solid and well-argued plea that we should go back and watch Band of Brothers, which when I get to catch up on sleep in my life and watch things for fun, even though that doesn't quite sound like fun, 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 you are correct. But what Kyle said about it that I thought was really intelligent is he said, Band of Brothers feels like Spielberg and Hanks making amends for the mistakes they made in Private Ryan. And then Matt Marone at The Big M was one of the many people who suggested that we need to read William Goldman's takedown of Saving Private Ryan. William Goldman, as you know, he's a screenwriter. He did Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He did My 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 Darling, The Princess Bride. And he hated Saving Private Ryan. And his massive takedown is actually really funny and really crazy. And I was reading it and like thinking, oh my God, this is why he's such a good screenwriter. Like he pointed out that, you know, They finally find Saving Private Ryan, and Matt Damon is like, I don't want to leave. I want to, like, fight for this bridge. And he makes this pitch, and that Tom Hanks, this is what how Goldman would have fixed that scene. He says, Tom Hanks should say, I understand your emotions, but we are out of here. You know, he's the leader. He should have taken that charge. And then as they leave the village, and they're crossing the bridge, then they see the Germans approach, and they realize it's too late to leave. 
and then they get to cut back to fighting. And he says, William Goldman points out, like, you get exactly what you have and it goes on, except now you have more urgency and without this idea of, like, manipulation that doesn't make any sense. So if you want to read a very, 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 very long takedown of Saving Private Ryan that I'm glad I didn't read before I did this podcast because I think I've just quoted every single thing in it, I would recommend tracking this down. It seems to be everywhere. Before we get to this week's movie, A Night at the Opera with the Marx Brothers, we asked you guys last week to call in and cast the new Marx Brothers. Who do you think could play the new the Marx Brothers today and make them revitalized and angry? Let's take a listen. My new Marx Brothers would be Paul Rudd as Groucho, because I think he can deliver those lines. Sasha Baron Cohen as Chico, because I think he can play guys who are at once smart and stupid. So I came up with Rose Byrne from Margaret Dumont, probably John Mulaney or Jason Sudeikis as Groucho. I don't know. I would have Eric Andre as Harpo, Amy Poehler as Chico, Anthony Jeselnik as Groucho. Okay, for Groucho, I'm thinking Taika Waititi, Chico, Aquafina, Zeppo, William Jackson, Harper. And uh, for Harpo, I actually think Jason Mantzoukas. I, I think he could be pretty funny and do some good stuff with a silent character. Oscar Isaac as Groucho because he just seems like he'd be sarcastic enough. Natasha Leone as... Um, Checo, because she seems like she could nail that after Russian Doll. Ryan Gosling as uh, Harpo, because of the nice guys. And just for good measure, I'd throw in Adam Driver for Zeppo, because he'd be a good straightener. And I'd say Tony Hale as Margaret Dumont, because I like seeing jokes happen to to him after Vice and Arrested Development. Okay, I have to jump in and just talk about a bunch of these in particular, because I love them. Um, I'm, like, fan-casting my own dream. I mean... Rose Byrne, the Rose Byrne of Spy in the Giant Heels as a Margaret Dumont, absolutely sold. Natasha Leone doing her accent from Russian Doll as a Chico, yes. And all Ryan Gosling does is he likes to show up in movies and not talk anyways and give people deep, soulful, soulful eyes. Um, and I like him better in his silent comedy moments when he – I like him not talking. So yes, yes to him as Harpo, absolutely. Uh, anyways, so with that in mind, I'm going to be picturing them in my heads as we go through the rest of this week's episode. Let's do it. The year is 1935. Babe Ruth hits his final home run. FDR signs the Neutrality Act. The Looney Tunes character of Porky Pig was first introduced. Amelia Earhart flies solo across the Pacific. The first canned beer goes on sale. And Alcoholics Anonymous was founded on June 10th, just a couple months after New York City. Uh, Monopoly was released, and a lot was going on that year. And it was also the year that a little movie called A Night at the Opera was released. It's number 85 on AFI's top 100 list. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? A Night at the Opera, it stars our Marx Brothers. And you know what? Let's up at the top promise that we are going to pronounce Chico the correct way this entire episode. That's right, Chico. Chico, Chico. Stars Groucho Marx, Harpo Marx, Chico Marx, no Zeppo. Zeppo has quit Groucho Marx wants to get into the making money off opera singers business. Uh, he attaches his star to a series of opera people and a rich patroness played by our beloved Margaret Dumont. We're going to talk about later on in depth in this episode. Yes. Uh, they go to America to strike it rich in opera with a bunch of people that dislike them. They take a long boat there. Chico and Harpo. Chico and Harpo. Hello. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Chico and Harpo come along for the ride along with a bumbling handsome blonde man. And chaos reigns. So, Amy, you know, this is our second episode on the Marx Brothers. And if you are listening to Unspooled for the first time, 
we would suggest that you go back and listen to the Duck Soup episode because we cover a lot about the Marx Brothers, their characters, their style of comedy. and Their we really, history, their mother. We got Conan O'Brien on that episode talking about how he loves them. It's a great episode, and we don't want to recover the same territory. We want to kind of go in different directions on this one. So we will talk about this film, but we aren't going to get as in-depth into the Marx Brothers as we did the last time. Uh, but what we are going to talk about is thank you for this Zokahedron. Zokihedron gave us these two Marx Brothers movies in order. We did Duck Soup first. That movie came first. And now we're doing the movie they did immediately after Duck Soup. These movies are paired. And a big thing happens to the Marx Brothers in between these movies, which I think makes this interesting to talk about. Yeah, it, this is the kind of beginning of the new wave of Marx Brothers, right? Like, this is the family-friendly version. This is the Eddie Murphy doing Dr. Doolittle from Eddie Murphy doing Beverly Hills Cop, right? I mean, uh, there's still a bunch of sex jokes, but yes. Yes, but I mean, <laughs> but family-friendly sex jokes. Yeah, I mean, because what happened to the Marx Brothers when A Duck Soup came out is that everybody loves Duck Soup today, but Duck Soup was just like, all right. Right. When it existed, it didn't do that well. The guys were sort of bummed out. They actually kind of broke up for a little bit. Zeppo left. Zeppo's like, I'm done being the straight man. This doesn't work for me. I'm going to go make a bunch of money the other way. Uh, What's the other way? Oh, hey, hey. Family friendly <laughs> show. No, I'm kidding. He's fine. He's fine. Um, Chico and Groucho, they became more radio acts for a little bit. Harpo went to the Soviet Union. I'm not sure what wow. he did there. I would like to see the movie about Harpo and the Soviet Union being bummed out about duck soup. Yeah. And they're all like, maybe the movies don't work for us anymore. Maybe we had our good run and we're over. But then they get a call from Irving Thalberg. Now, Thalberg had a really interesting idea. Like, he believed that. You know, the films before, the Marx Brothers that we know and love, were a little bit too anarchic. I mean, they were just these forces of nature coming in, destroying everything that they touched. And Thalberg wanted to do something a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, Harpo wrote about this in his book, Harpo Speaks. He said, our trouble, Irving said, was that we were a big-time act using small-time material. We belonged in eight pictures, not in these, like, hodgepodge patchworks jobs. And that our movies should have believable plots, love stories, big casts, and production numbers. And Harpo says, like, we were afraid that this would take us out of our element, honestly. But Thalberg said, don't worry about a thing. You get me the laughs. I will get you the story. And then Irving Thalberg was like, although there are only three of you now, there's only uh, Groucho, Chico, and Harpo, no Zeppo. Uh, can we get you for a little bit cheaper? And Groucho said, do not be silly. Without Zeppo, we're worth twice as much. And the quote that I read that I loved was that his logic was that the Marxists could get twice the box office with half the laughs. And I think that that's a really interesting way of envisioning this film, because when I watched it, I was like, wow, I don't know why I'm not responding to it the way I thought. Like, the idea of the Marx Brothers and this movie seems so lauded. It's a very funny movie, but it's not as funny as Duck Soup, in my opinion. Like, I felt like when I read that quote, I was like, oh, this all makes sense. It is a very good movie, and I actually think it gets better as it progresses, or especially on on the ship. But I didn't feel like it had the energy of their other films. It's weird. I was kind of thinking that as we were watching this. When it started, I was a little bit bummed out. I was like, man... Another Marx Brothers movie. What are we going to talk about? I'm not even laughing as much in this one. Right. And then it like picked up steam. And I noticed this thing, maybe Thalberg was right, that when I laughed, I laughed with more surprise and more joy. Like the jokes actually hit harder. There weren't as many of them, but I liked them more. Well, I think that 
all these sequences had a beginning, middle, and end. It just didn't feel like we're cutting out for no reason. And I believe that Duck Soup feels more ragtag, like a little bit more like, um, you know, whatever's happening, we got it, let's go, let's move on. You know, like a little bit more fly by night. And you're right, this does have a feeling of an actual feature film. So I think when you think about this film, you think about the stateroom scene, you think about the uh, the contract scene, and there's probably about four or five good bits in this hour and 40 minute movie. Like an episode of Saturday Night Live or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, I mean, this, you sense here that the Marx Brothers actually worked with someone who was trying to shape them a lot. And maybe for the worse down the road, which is kind of what happened. But like Thalberg kept saying like, all right, what's your story for this movie? What's your story for this movie going to be? And then he would reject them, which is interesting. Because right. I felt like with Duck Soup, they took a lot of the bits they really love from the stage. And they're like, all right, we're going to do it here. But here Thalberg was like, okay, what's your idea? And they're like, we're going to do a movie about how Harpo gets um, built up as the world's greatest tenor singer, even though he never sings of right. course, or opens his mouth. And Thalberg was like, no. And then they're like, okay, 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 we got another idea. Here's this idea. We will be these Broadway producers who are going to try to make the worst opera in history so that we can make a ton of money on it. So essentially they came up with the idea of the producers? They did. And Thalberg was like, no. So then Mel Brooks <laughs> took it and made the producers. And then they came up with this one, which is just sort of, it's almost kind of, I say this word with the asterisk built in, Shakespearean. Right. In that... You know, you have, like, this whole chaos and crazy things happening. And meanwhile, there's, like, this love story in the background that you kind of half care about, but not as much as you really care about just the wordplay. Well, I will say that I enjoyed this love story more than the one in Duck Soup. And I would argue that the reason why I think this one is more engaging is I think that Kitty Carlisle, who plays, like, the ingenue, has, like, a sense of self. She has a little bit of an energy and an attitude. She's just not, like, a coquettish, like, oh, you know. No. Yeah, she actually has a little bit of an energy. And, you know, to the Marx Brothers' credit, even in Duck Soup, uh, that character that Raquel Torres played. Oh, I loved her. She was so great. Her part was cut down, but they did cast these women that had a little bit more going on. But in this movie, I felt like Kitty Carlisle was the center uh, ingenue, and, and she just had an energy that I liked. I don't know. I responded to her in a good way. Like, she felt fresh and a little bit more alive. Yeah, when Kitty is, like, beset by the two suitors, basically, by, yeah. like, hello, I am the Mr. King Opera, uh, Walter Wolf King is like, Rodolfo Laspari. When she rejects him, you sense that she's just very clear she doesn't like him. It's not like, oh, I don't oh. know what I want. Yeah, you she's know. not torn. This is not a she's triangle. Not torn, which makes her seem less of a dummy. Well, I would also argue she'd have to be a major dummy to fall for Laspari because part of Thalberg's whole plan was to make the villains very clear. And one, one of the first scenes that you meet Laspari, he is whipping, whipping Chico. He is whipping Harpo. Like, literally has a whip and is beating him. There is no way that you could be confused that this is not a good person. Some of my best friends have whips. <laughs> Where did he get that whip from? Um, Kitty Carlisle was very opinionated. She didn't want to take this role because originally they told her they were going to dub her singing voice. But she was trained in opera. She's like, no, no, no. If I do it, I will sing. And she is 
singing in this film. So that's really interesting. Wow, that's kind of like The Greatest Showman when uh, the woman who's in all the new Mission Impossible yeah. movies, she practiced her big opera song forever and then they replaced her with another voice. Rebecca Ferguson? Yeah, they replaced Rebecca Ferguson when her song's like, all the stars of a thousand Ah, uh, that sucks. Oh, you don't want me to keep singing. But why didn't they do that for Emma Watson and Beauty and the Beast? We'll <sighs> never know. You don't want to get me started on Emma Watson and the Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> um, <laughs> Amy, I wanted to talk just about the opening of this film because I thought there was something interesting here. And talking about the idea of this being more of a um, a full feature, I think they did a, a good job of trying to ground these characters in reality. And the first scene opens up uh, with Margaret Dumont uh, waiting on Otis P. Driftwood, who has uh, not shown up for his dinner date. It's revealed that he is behind her eating with a very young and attractive woman. And as that scene kind of plays on, he leaves a young and attractive woman. And I want you to rewatch this scene at home. It's beautifully done. She is watching Otis the entire time, kind of with this bemused expression, as if she just had dinner with this lovely man and she's just so fascinated by him. And I just thought it was such a funny choice because a lot of people in this film react in a way. They all make a choice of... How are they going to respond to these characters? Like they feel that they're actually in the world and not just floating around it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you could have made that blonde lady over his shoulder, the hot young blonde who we hear just laughing. She's yeah. like, ha, 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 ha. That's her own introduction. You could have just put her out of focus, but he keeps her sort of in focus and yeah. glaring at him the whole time. I was thinking of Fiji Water Girl. At the Golden Globe, <laughs> she was like, I'm in this scene and I'm going to make the most of it. Really you are not going to make me disappear. Also in that scene, I think that there's this moment, you know, what Groucho is always doing with Margaret Dumont is he's like, I love you, you fool. I love you, you fool. Right. And here he gives her this little speech about what she reminds him of. And I thought it was actually pretty romantic I... up until the last sentence. I didn't mean to tell you, but you, you dragged it out of me. I love you. It's rather difficult to believe that when I find you dining with another woman. That woman? Do you know why I sat with her? Because no. she reminded me of you. <laughs> really? Of course. That's why I'm sitting here with you. Because you remind me of you. Your eyes, your throat, your lips. Everything about you reminds me of you. Except you. How do you account for that? If she figures that one out, she's good. I mean, Margaret Dumont's smile when he says that, yes. is actually genuinely lovely. I thought the same exact thing. You feel like this flirtation. You understand why this character is with this man. I mean, she's trying to get into high society. She has hired Otis B. Driftwood, Groucho Marx, to get her into high society, but he has yet to do anything. But you see and you understand the charm, whereas in Duck Soup, there, you don't really get it. She'd have to be a moron to keep on following him around, you know. I believe their connection right there more than anything with Mrs. Robinson and the graduate. Wow, Whoa, Amy's hey. still taking Sorry. shots. Gonna do it. Um, but this opening scene is really lovely, but I will say the pacing of it was slower. And we're talking again about, you know, the differences of Duck Soup or the films before this and the films after. And I think they may have learn to slow down or maybe have been directed to slow down to let the audience catch up to them. Watching these so closely together, it's a little jarring, but I can also see how that would pull in a bigger audience. Yeah, I mean, there are moments in this movie where it basically just grinds to a halt and it says, you're going to listen to some opera. Right. And I found it a, a little weird, honestly. You can definitely feel the kind of thumb of, of Thalberg on like the back of the editor's neck saying, 
we got to make sure that the people in Poughkeepsie get some romance in this movie. Right. However Thalberg sounded. I don't think he sounded a fucking thing like that. <laughs> yeah, and, and I would get a little bit impatient sometimes. There are a lot of musical numbers in here. I mean, like, oh, here's and- the most famous one. It's the song called Alone. It's a number that's sung between Kitty Carlisle and Alan Jones. He's the opera singer who loves her, who can't get a break. And this actually kind of became a huge hit. It was sort of the shallow... Of its day for a minute. It became a giant thing on this the box This was the shallow of its day? See, now, Amy, I'm glad you brought this up because we are so on the same page on this episode. I thought that they didn't really commit to this musical number because they put a lot of bits in between it. It's almost as if it's underscoring other funny scenes. Like there's a scene that we just heard with Groucho. There's a really funny scene with Harpo saying goodbye to everybody. You're seeing a lot of comedic bits. So I was like, oh, I like that they're kind of keeping the musical numbers a little bit more... Uh, comedic. Even though it's something serious, there's also comedy going on in between it. And I was kind of thinking, you know, when you hear that alone clip, there's like a chorus, right? You hear a lot of people singing alone Mm -hmm. and they're doing this strange thing with like the magical realism of a musical number, you know, because you can go two ways, right? With a musical number ordinarily. Everybody on the boat starts also singing. Right. Or nobody in the boat also starts singing. It's just our leads and everybody else is acting like it's not happening. And this in this scene, they kind of do both. No one else is singing. However, they keep having people kind of walk by with like playing a violin that you're not really hearing, but it's there. Or there's a guitar in the back of this one shot. And so you can't quite tell if this is reality or not or what is happening. What did you think about the fact that they did two piano numbers back to back in this film? I thought that was an odd choice. Like you have Chico doing a piano number, and then Harpo comes in and does a piano number, and they don't separate them in the film at all. It's like, oh, here's a piano. Let's go both do our bits. It feels a little bit more like a live stage show in a way. You know, I will say that was actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie, the piano scene, for a couple of reasons. Like, I mean, the camera work, you're right. They're barely doing anything. I think they just put the camera on the end of the piano, and they just take turns at the seat. But what you really saw in that is like this unbroken shot, really. You sometimes get some close-ups of the kids. They're surrounded by Italian children on this boat just watching them. And and you get to see like, A, with Chico, what a musician he is. Because he doesn't just play this little piano song. And I want to play a little bit of the piano song. He makes his fingers into dancing characters. The way he lifts them up, throws them back down. He's doing a whole bit. And I was thinking as I was watching it like... He is an artist here in a way that I didn't totally appreciate in Duck Soup. He's saying, I can also do so many things. I mean, you can maybe hear how much he's making his fingers dance in this bit, but if you can't, just imagine that his fingers are basically people. Yeah, you're totally right. This is a very performative piece. And I think the reason why it was shot like that, the reason why it's kind of positioned in the film at an intermission-y kind of point where you feel like it's kind of just cleaning the table for the next half of the film, I found that one of Thalberg's big... uh, mandates to the Marx Brothers was to get back on stage and do these bits live. We talked in the last episode about them doing these bits for the first time, you know, in the films. These weren't bits that were honed on the stage. And in this film, all their bits were honed on the stage and they understood where the laughs were. So they were actually making comedy choices 
when they shot it that were based on how the audience responded to these bits before. Yeah, like Reader's Digest actually was there at some of these live shows. And they were saying, like, if the, if the audience didn't laugh at a gag, they just took the gag out of the movie. And if they really laughed at a gag, the gag stayed into the movie. So they were almost like focus testing this movie live. You know, when I was doing my sketch show, Human Giant, um, what we would do is we would do rough cuts of our sketches and we would bring them out to different places around town and play them in front of a live studio audience. We believed in the sketches, but it helped us edit the sketches to figure out where the laughs were. And it's such an important thing. It's not the same exact response. Like, you know, people watching things at home will laugh differently, but you can't help but acknowledge when it works for an audience, it's going to probably work at home too. It's, it, it's I think, one of the most beneficial things you can do in comedy. I know Judd Apatow famously, you know, uh, records every one of his test screenings to see where the laughs are and edits towards the laughs. Um, everything I've ever been in, you really want to make sure that you are kind of pre-testing the movie, not just for structure, character, and story, but really for the laughs. Do the, the, you need more air here to kind of, you know, let it breathe? I remember I saw the first test screening of Step Brothers, and it was much tighter, that you were missing a ton of jokes. And I remember the big difference was there was just a little bit more air in those moments. So when you're in the audience, you actually have time to catch up and enjoy what you're seeing. That's so interesting because, like, one of the criticisms people sometimes make about A Night at the Opera is, like, there's a little bit too long of a pause between jokes. And they were saying it's because the Marx Brothers were, like, used to listening to the audience laugh. And so they just paced them that way. And when the director, Sam Wood, would try to speed up the comedy, they are like, no, this is just how it works. By the way, Sam Wood, fun fact about director Sam Wood. Uh, who did not get along with the Marx Brothers. No, not at, at all. all. <laughs> um, Sam Wood has sort of come up. His ghost has haunted this podcast oh, before. Really? Briefly. Okay. Remember when we were doing Sunset Boulevard and we were talking about this lost Gloria Swanson movie, Queen yes. Kelly? Mm-hmm. And how Von Stroheim, who plays her butler in, in Sunset Boulevard, was the director of that. And then she fired him. Director she hired to fix it. Sam Wood. Whoa. So that guy who did this serious, serious Gloria Swanson drama is the one who's in charge of A Night of the Opera, and it's not really working out for him. Well, I mean, look, I think any director that is taking on a Marx Brothers film has their back up to the wall because this is a force of nature. These are comedy geniuses. They've perfected their art on a vaudeville stage. You're at- outnumbered. Exactly. And they know more than you. But, you know, I think it may have been a smart choice to put a drama person there. And this guy was a perfectionist. You know, the scene where um, Harpo is hanging on that wire. Uh, he did that scene so many times that like Harpo's hands were like just swollen and almost bloody because he wanted to get the shot right. And maybe yeah, that's almost like Kubrickian, which I don't think yeah, is going to work with these guys. Not at all. I mean, and Groucho definitely didn't get along with him. I mean, there's like a, this famous fight they had. Yeah. I mean, I think the famous one is that Sam Wood was like, oh, I guess you just can't make an actor out of clay. And Groucho goes, or a director out of wood. Oh man! That is a perfect slam. I mean, he is amazing. I I love clap back. Not yeah. A director out of wood. That's a lot of claps. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I didn't understand that. That's where a clap back came from. That you'd have to do in between every word. I don't know. Maybe I'm merging clap back and Twitter. Maybe I should just never use either word ever again. I mean, one thing that Wood did that, like, super, 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 super made them mad is that he imposed this fine. Did you hear about this? No. Yeah, if they were late to set, he made them pay 50 bucks. And they were like, 
what on earth? They're all super, super, super mad. And what they would do, because it is the Marx Brothers, they would just they would just start screwing with each other and trying to make each other get in trouble. So they would like lock each other in rooms and like nail their doors shut and stuff so that the other brothers would be late and have to pay 50 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the Marx Brothers really did have this sense of fun and playfulness uh, in their real life. And just to kind of go back to Thalberg, you know, Thalberg, notoriously um, someone who was late for meetings, someone who kept people waiting. He was at the past generation, uh, Lauren Michaels. No one knew when he would actually come in. And there's a story that he kept the Marx Brothers waiting one time so long that the Marx Brothers took off all their clothes. They started a fire and were roasting a potato. And when he walked in, he saw them sitting around this uh, campfire in his office. And he's like, okay, I'll, I'll never be late again. I mean, that is basically a in the movie though right right like the opera producer comes into his office and all of the dudes are just there getting drunk on his booze i mean truth and comedy makes me, yeah which makes me think that there is something to a night of the opera as also being this movie about the creative process like you guys are trying to say like art goes like this and that this type of person is is trash and this type of person is famous for no reason and this type of person goes ignored and the idea that they're mirroring things that they're actually doing in real life in this movie it kind of makes me wonder how much they're thinking about like, well, we didn't work at Paramount. Are we going to work over here? Do we want to work over here? Is this right for us? I mean, speaking about like the real artistic anger that I think is in this movie a little bit. What about this scene where Chico and Groucho negotiate a salary for their star opera singer? Because they talk about this in a way that absolutely sounds like people who have been having problems with their management. Well, I think I can get America to meet him halfway. Could he sail tomorrow? You pay him enough money, he could sail yesterday. How much you pay him? Well, I don't know. Let's see. A thousand dollars a night. I'm entitled to a small profit. How about ten dollars a night? Ten, ten dollars? <laughs> I'll take it. All right, but remember, I get ten percent for negotiating the deal. Yes, and I get ten percent for being the manager. How much does that leave? Well, that leaves him, uh, eight dollars. Eight dollars, eh? Well, he sends a five dollars home to his mother. Well, at least three dollars. Three dollars. Can he live in New York on three dollars? Like a prince. Of course, he won't be able to eat, but he can live like a prince. However, out of that three dollars, you know, he'll have to pay an income tax. Oh, his income tax. Yes, you know, there's a federal tax and a state tax and a city tax and a street tax and a sewer tax. How much does this come to? Well, I figure if he doesn't sing too often, he can break even. All right, we take it. You know, this is the scariest time in any performer's career. You've just had a flop. What is not working? Especially when you have a movie like Duck Soup, where we see now in the past, it was working. It just wasn't received at the time the way they wanted it to be. The McGruber of the day. Exactly. And I think that that really screws with you because we know it's good. They know it's good. So do they change? And I think that they did change a little bit. And Maybe for the better, maybe for the worst. I think a lot of people consider their best three films to be Duck Soup, Night at the Opera, and Day at the Races. And two of those are Thalberg films. Um, and then quickly after, Thalberg starts just making them more and more extraneous in their own movies. And being like, right. it's a Marx Brothers movie, but the romance is now most of the movie. You're yeah. just coming on to the, the edges of the movie. When I first kind of found the Marx Brothers as a kid, I was devouring as much as I could. And then you were just waiting and waiting until these Marx Brothers came in. It became like the comedic relief of these films. And it was such a bummer as a kid to see like a Marx Brothers film where they were in like one fourth of it. It would be like, you know... They're like the Kramer role of Seinfeld. You know, funny when they're there, but not there all the time. 
I mean, it is so weird to me that you would have the Marx Brothers and not use them all the time. It feels sort of like Dahlberg was hoping they would just be this massive launch pad. You know, he was trying to get Kitty Carlisle to happen and he was trying to get Alan Jones to happen. So he's like, put them in a Marx Brothers movie, have them be stars. And that didn't totally work out for him. I mean, Alan Jones did okay. You know, the handsome blonde singer dude. But Kitty Carlisle, she just kind of took control of what she wanted in her own life. She decided she wanted to get married more. She did a lot more theater. She scaled back. She didn't really act Basically until like the 90s again. Wow. What yeah. was she in in the 90s? Uh, she was in Six Degrees of Separation, the Will Smith movie. Oh, wow. She basically okay. like scales down and then pops back up again at the end. And she's like, uh, you feel that kind of that vibe you got from her even on film that she's in charge. Of right. What she wanted. She just doesn't take any shit. Yeah. You know, Paul, let's take a break here and learn a little bit more about a woman who I think does mean so much to these movies, Margaret Dumont. Let's talk to a freelance writer named Amanda Garrett. She runs a blog called Old Hollywood Films. She is obsessed with everything in the window from 1920 to 1960. She is the woman who talked about Margaret Dumont. Hello, Amanda. All right, so, Amanda, you know, in, in all of these Marx Brothers films, Margaret Dumont is, like, stuffy. She's silly. She has no sense of humor. I mean, how much does the Margaret Dumont character in all these Marx Brothers movies match the real woman? I think in some ways she was like the character she played in the films. She was a wealthy person. She came from a wealthy background. But I think she was also different uh, than that. She was a lot more adventurous than most uh, high society matrons would have been. They wouldn't have gotten on the stage with anyone, let alone the Marx Brothers. You you touched on the fact that she was a wealthy woman. I mean, she married like a, a millionaire, a little millionaire in the 20s who I mean, he made his money in sugar. Uh, it's so surprising to me that then she would even act at all. You're right. That seems really rebellious. Yeah, this seems, I've heard conflicting accounts that after her husband died, maybe she needed the money. But I've also heard that she was independently wealthy and she didn't need the money. She just enjoyed acting. She enjoyed uh, performing. She was maybe a little like, the Beals and Grey Gardens. She just had a love for that, although less eccentric than them. Gosh, I love this idea that this woman sort of represents like stiff society is actually a rebel. Yeah, she she was uh, in a way a rebel. You know, you wouldn't see a lot of uh, society women going onto this stage. And her actually, she actually changed her name. Her real name was Daisy Baker, which would have been common, you know, not to bring embarrassment to her family. I mean, I love that her real name was Daisy Baker, because that doesn't seem to at all fit the woman that we see, you know? She seems so much like a Margaret Dumont that (laughs) you would not look at her and say, that's Daisy Baker. (laughs) What about, I mean, she made a ton of movies without them, too. Like, how much was typecasting a factor, do you think, in her career? Well, I think it definitely was, um, because there was only a certain type that Margaret Dumont could play. When you look at her, you see the grand dame. So she played um, in mostly in comedies. Uh, she played with Wheeler and Woolsey, who were a uh, sort of like a Laurel and Hardy 30s comedy duo. She was in a couple of films with W.C. Fields, uh, Never Give a Sucker an e- Even Break, and Tales of Manhattan. But she does sort of play the, the type of character she plays with Groucho, but there was just something she had with Groucho that she didn't have, you know, with Fields or anyone else. I mean, I have to admit, it kind of bums me out that she doesn't sing in A Night at the Opera, given that she could actually sing opera. <laughs> she could actually sing. And that helped get her, get her get cast. And it actually really landed her the first part she ever got with the Marx Brothers, 
which was their stage play, The Coconuts, uh, they were pulling their hair out trying to find somebody who was adept at comedy and could also sing. So it was uh, George Kaufman who was uh, the writer. He had seen her in a play and remembered her, and she was absolutely perfect casting for them. Yeah, I'm trying to. I mean, I guess if you have giant opera lungs, you can make sure you are heard over the din of Groucho talking 8,000 miles a minute. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and she could just kind of stand there. And I think they had a tendency to obviously film as there's editing and there's stuff involved. In uh, stage, I think they would just go crazy and could literally rip apart the stage if they were in that kind of mood that night. And some of that may have been some of what Groucho said. She would ask him, why are they laughing? It may have been because they were ad-libbing or they were doing something destructive and she just didn't understand it at the time. But um, she obviously knew that she was in a comedy and knew that those were jokes. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. I mean, the idea that you could look at Groucho in the face with that mustache being painted on and not know you're in a comedy. Come on. What is he thinking? He even said that at the Oscars. She thought we were in straight dramas. Well, she was on stage with them. You could not hear somebody, people laughing hysterically night after night and not realize that you're in a comedy (laughs) unless they're like comatose or something. And, uh, and she, not only did she realize she worked on being a straight lady and really put a lot of effort into her comic timing and things like that. Well, yeah. I mean, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the effort it takes to be a straight lady or maybe like one of your favorite moments in a Margaret Dumont performance. Um, I think um, from her own words, the straight lady was to build up the laughs and to extend the laughs. And I think um, if your listeners are watching the night at the opera, just watch her reactions after Groucho hits a one-liner. He says, you know, in the opening scene, especially, he hits a lot. He says, I'm, you know, I had dinner with another woman because she reminded me of you. And she just has the absolutely perfect reaction. She rolls her eyes and, you know, and it extends the joke. Is there anybody you think who's acting today that you feel like is really great in the Margaret Dumont tradition? I live in an old Hollywood bubble, (laughs) so um, a lot of my, uh, (laughs) because uh, classic movie blogging is sort of a hobby, a lot of my entertainment time gets taken uh, watching classic movies. So, you know, I don't know that there's really anybody who can compare to her. Um, I think she's probably the best straight person ever, except for maybe Desi Arnaz, uh, opposite Lucille Ball and I Love Lucy. She just really knew how to make Groucho's one-liners even funnier than they really were. Well, now you've got me picturing what a movie of two straight character actors would be if it was a Desi versus Margaret movie. Would anybody be telling the jokes, or would they actually get to shine? Yeah, I don't think it would be. (laughs) And the Marx Brothers, like you said, needed someone to ground them, and she grounded them, you know, by being really a stable presence against all this anarchy and confusion. I love that. Well, I guess we could use a little Margaret Dumont in our lives right now. So I appreciate you talking to us about her, Amanda. Thank you for keeping classic movies alive. We love that very much. Okay. Well, I enjoy listening to your podcast, (laughs) and you have a good evening. You too. Bye. Here's the time to talk about another company that is very near and dear to my heart. It is Fracture, the site for turning the photos that you take on your phone that you're always scrolling through and thinking, God, that was pretty. God, that was a lovely day. Boy, am I really glad I have that photo. 
here it is on my phone. I hope I don't drop my phone somewhere and like get it wet and never get to see this photo again. No, don't worry about that. Go to Fracture because what Fracture does is they are the site that takes your photos from your phone that you love and they print them on glass with ink. So they are beautiful. You can hang them on your wall. You can look at the photos that you took and the memories that you love every day. You can make them in any sort of size on glass. They come ready to display right out of the box. You can make tiny ones that you can hand out to your little friends. You can make big ones to hang on your wall that are a focal piece of your room. These prints come in like a sleek, frameless design so they can match any of your decor. You can even take a picture for your decor. You're like, I have this red couch. What am I going to do to show it off? Go on a travel day around your neighborhood. Look for something you think is beautiful that would look great on top of your couch. Take that picture. Then send that picture to Fracture and they will put it on glass for you. Beautiful, bright colors, and you will have your home decorated exactly how you want it to be. Fracture prints are handmade in Gainesville, Florida, from materials sourced right here in the U.S. They are a U.S. company. We love that. And not only that, they're a green company. And what that means is that their factory is carbon neutral. So you do not have to even worry about making the environment a worse place. I just placed a pretty big fracture order myself because I am throwing a bachelorette party for a person who is not listening to this ad right now because... The bride-to-be is going to get a very big picture that I hope she likes a lot. And all of us other people going and just hanging out with her, we're going to get little copies of it. So we have our own souvenir of our awesome weekend. And it's not that expensive to have something that looks like I did a really good job helping throw this bachelorette party. So thank you for that, Fracture. And if you want to check out Fracture yourself, you can get a special discount on your very first Fracture order. That's FractureMe.com slash Unspooled. Pick Unspooled in the one question survey that they ask you after checkout, and you will get a very special discount on making your house a little bit more beautiful and taking some of those pictures off your phone and showing them to people without just putting your phone in their face. Enjoy. Hey you, person who knows that to get a good job done, you need good people around you, a person who knows the value of working with people that you like and who do a great job with your business. If you want to make a hire for your small business, naturally you know that you need to find that best person to be trading emails with, texts with, to be like calling you at 9 in the morning with the good news and the bad news. You want the person that you do not mind hanging out with that you know does a really good job and odds are that person is on LinkedIn. Because LinkedIn jobs, they make it awesome and easy to get matched with quality candidates. You can scope them out, look at their picture, look at their resume, look at everything they've done. So you know that this person that you have hired is good at the whole round picture of the game. We're talking about the hard skills, the soft skills, what they've got on their resume and what they're good at that they've been like wanting a job that will show off better. People come to LinkedIn every single day so that they can like advance their careers, meet other people. So LinkedIn understands what people are really looking forward to. They're just secretly watching underneath the surface of what employment is like in the modern era, in this rapidly changing era where everybody's good at a bunch of things and need to be good at everything. So when you use LinkedIn jobs to hire somebody, your matches, your matches are going to be based on more than a resume. They look at skills, they look at backgrounds, but they also look at things like your, their interests, activities, passions. And that way you get the people who are just the most relevant and the most qualified for the role that you have. So you can focus on the candidates that you really want to spend the most time talking to and you don't have to sift through the people that you think are really not going to fit. So if you want to make a quality hire right now, you should go to LinkedIn Jobs right now because customers rate them number one in delivering quality hires. So post a job today, right now, linkedin.com slash unspooled, and you will get $50 off your first job post. That's $50 cheaper at finding a person that you want to work for you, a person that you like. So go to linkedin.com slash unspooled, get started, be smart, and you'll be very, very happy that you picked that person right there. Good job. All right, so Amy... Any conversation of this film would not be complete without really getting into the stateroom scene. I think when you think about the Marx Brothers, the stateroom scene is 
the ultimate Marx Brothers scene, right? I, I, you know, when I think of the Marx Brothers, I see that scene in my head. It's it's visually really fun, and it feels like this entire movie, why it's on this list, in my opinion, is because of that scene. We see Groucho on the uh, steam ship, and as he's getting to his room, he finds that he has been put in a very small room, and there's a bunch of jokes about how small the room is, and then in his bag, his giant uh, trunk, he has stowaways, three stowaways. So now there's four people in a very small room with a trunk, and then Groucho makes an order, and then someone comes in to give him a pedicure, and then another person comes in, and then another person comes in. So basically, it's like that old 1950s like prank, how many people can we fit in a telephone booth, but it's all in this very small stateroom on a steamship, and it really is a funny scene. Like I haven't seen it in quite some time and the way it builds is so kind of organic. It doesn't feel rushed and it has the, uh, you know, the best kind of ending, which is the door opens and everyone just kind of flies out. Yeah. It feels like being inside a clown car, like in the dash cam. Yeah. You're watching everybody cram into the car. And like, what I think works so well about it is that every person who knocks on the door and comes in just doesn't even blink. No. Like, okay. And they're all very deadpan. Well, I have a job to do. I have to go fix that thing. I have to go change these sheets. Let's make it happen. Here, let's listen to a little bit of it. I'm the engineer's assistant. You know, I had a premonition you were going to show up. The engineer's right over there in the corner. You can chop your way right through. Say, is it my imagination or is it getting crowded here? I got plenty of room. Yes? Well, you can come in and prowl around if you want to. If she isn't in here, you can probably find somebody just as good. Well, could I use your phone? Use the phone? I'll lay even money you can't get in the room. How do you do? This boat will be in New York before you can get to that phone. I came to mop up. Just the woman I'm looking for. Come right ahead. You like to start on the ceiling. It's the only place that isn't being occupied. You can clean my shoes if you want to. Tell Aunt Minnie to set up a bigger room, too, will you? Stuart? Ah, come right ahead. And then then the waiters show up, four waiters, each with, like, a plate of food, each with, uh, like, mini hard-boiled eggs, the most perfect slippery food. I mean, it just builds and builds and builds. And meanwhile, you have Harpo pretending to be asleep and just falling on different people. Well, that's the best part of it is Harpo is completely asleep as 15 people crowd into this room. And to your point before... Everyone is acting as if no one else is there. They're kind of inconvenienced about being bumped around. I really love watching the manicurist because the manicurist is at certain points just giving Groucho a manicure. And then when she gets bumped and jiggled around, she's like, oh, oh, like there's there's great faces on every one of these people. Everyone is doing their job well. And that is why I think the scene works so well in the film, because it's not like, oh, it's so crowded. No one even comments on it. Groucho does a little bit, but everyone who enters is like, nope, this is normal. This is normal. This is normal. And this is a scene that we may not have had in this film at all, because the original scene as scripted wasn't working. Groucho threw out the scene, and this is, according to lore, completely improvised. Groucho's like, let me take over. I know how to do this scene. And then we get this kind of magical, you know, classic scene of cinema. 
I mean, the story that I heard is that, you know, they had this writer, Bozeman, and he was working on the scene, and they kept being like, is it ready? Is it ready? Is it ready? Is it ready? And finally, Bozeman told Dahlberg, it's ready. And when they all showed up at his office, Bozeman had torn the script into pieces and just, like, glued it to the ceiling. And then they all had to, like, take it down and put it together. That seems a bit much. Wow. That seems a lot. But, yeah, like, you were talking earlier about the blonde woman in the restaurant scene. That manicurist, I love that you zoomed in on her because it's that perfect blend of, like, she, you're right, she is doing her job. She's not like, I'm not doing this. This is crazy. She's also looking just annoyed enough that she's existing in reality. It's a really delicate balance between, like, making it go too far in one direction, making it go too far in the other direction. Like, if she was just doing the nails and acting like nothing was happening, it wouldn't be as good. Well, I wonder if this is where Sam Wood comes in and is actually doing his job as a director. He may not be directing the comedy of the Marx Brothers, but directing the actors around the Marx Brothers actually helps the movie. And it becomes a film, like I said earlier, that feels a little bit more grounded and makes these scenes so much more fun. That's true, because I was just thinking, like, I can't imagine... What it must be like to be an actor in a Marx Brothers movie because they basically want one of two things from you, right? Like, oh my God, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm so aggrieved by right. whatever these wacky boys are doing, or I'm the villain. I right. will get mad at you. And you know, and there's a third. What's the third? I'm pretty. <laughs> you are. <laughs> but yeah. So like, what do you do? You know, how do you give a real performance in that? And I think manicurist who is not credited, and if anybody knows who she was, let us know. Yeah, manicurist. Nails it. If you could get an Oscar for being best background actress nail manicurist, she gets it. Well, I can also imagine people listening to the podcast right now might want to know what was the original scene that they threw out. And the original scene apparently was just a really simple, dumb gag, which was uh, Groucho would be kind of edged out of his room by all these people and had to change his pants in the hallway. That was the original idea. Like so many people in the room. And this you know, creates such a a more dynamic scene. It's like that old phrase, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And I feel like they had something that didn't work. They had all the props and everything ready for it. And they built this amazing scene. And it's a scene that we can't not mention the opening to, which is when they're ordering. What do we got for dinner? Anything you like, sir. You might have some tomato juice, orange juice, grape juice, pineapple juice. Hey, turn off the juice before I get electrocuted. All right, let me have one of each. And uh, two fried eggs, two poached eggs, two scrambled eggs, and two medium-boiled eggs. And two hard-boiled eggs. And two hard-boiled eggs. Make that three hard-boiled eggs. And uh, some roast beef, rare, medium, well done, and overdone. And two hard-boiled eggs. And two hard-boiled eggs. Make that three hard-boiled eggs. And uh, eight pieces of French pastry. This two hard-boiled eggs. And two hard-boiled eggs. Make that three hard-boiled eggs. And one duck egg. That made me laugh so hard. Just the repetition of two hard-boiled eggs. And again, the waiter, he feels like he's treating him like, okay, yes, sir. You know, and there's a great little moment at the end where he asks him, is tipping a lot on this boat? And, and then he doesn't tip him. It's a great, that is a great sequence. And I do think that this movie is at its peak uh, on the ship. it That's my favorite stuff is on the ship. When it gets off, there's a little bit more plotting, still funny, but it more capery. And I think what I really like about the Marx Brothers are the bits. I mean, here's a question for you, because I'm not a comedian. I've never had to do anything funny. Thank God. 
that the world has been saved. That, <laughs> but I mean, I can imagine that some people would think like, oh, the way to make this scene even funnier is if the waiter's like, "What are you doing? How many eggs do you want, man?" And like, is this a rule? Like, less is more. I don't think there's any rules in comedy, and I don't want to be anybody who is going to, you know, really examine comedy. Because I think there's two versions of that scene. Yes, there's a scene where the guy catches on immediately, like there's somebody else in the room. But I think, you know, in this scene, it's not about the reaction. It's almost like really about Groucho covering up. I I don't know. I, I think there's two versions of the scene, and both could work. But this one was executed like this. I mean, maybe part of it is that the actor they cast as the waiter he just looks absolutely like a normal person. If this yeah. was like Ginger Rogers, that would be the waiter. You know, if right. this was like, I don't know, Fred McMurray, that would be the waiter. Whereas if you wanted to be comedy waiter, comedy waiter might have a weirder mustache. No, I, I think the way that he's treating him is as if he is a wealthy, high society person. So he's not questioning anything. He's like, yes, sir, I'll get you that right away, sir. And they all bring it in. You know, they deliver all those eggs. No, that makes sense. I mean, maybe the joke is like that, Groucho could ever be mistaken for a nice, normal, rich man who's just doing his job in an orderly, logical world. And the more natural you play against that, the weirder it is that Groucho is ever being treated as though he's a human being from this planet. Yeah, I like that idea. You know, and I felt like this film, Groucho is a little bit more naturalistic than he was in Duck Soup. You know, in Duck Soup, he is a joke machine gun. It is nonstop. And we talked about that last time. He didn't even seem to care or react. It was like, I'm just doing this. I'm going to keep on firing and just nonstop. But here... Yeah, he was like a machine gun in every scene. Just like, joke, 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 joke. And you just took it. And there are some moments in here. We played that one with Margaret Dumont. I want to play another one with Margaret Dumont. I love this moment. Ah, hello, Tex. Hello. Say, pretty classy layout you got here. Do you like it? Ah, twin beds. You little rascal, you. One of those is a day bed. A likely story. Have you read any good books lately? Mr. Driftwood, will you please get off the bed? What would people say? They'd probably say you're a very lucky woman. Now, will you please shut up so I can continue my reading? No, I will not shut up. And will you kindly get up at once? I just love that moment of shut up. Like, there's a something, like, there's something so unclever about it that I I feel like makes that scene a little bit more real. You know, like she... She seems legit horrified. Yes. She's not like, oh my goodness. She's like, I'm a woman living in the world and I'm going to get embarrassed if people catch you here. And I will not shut up. By the way, I want to ask you though about the bridge between this scene with Margaret Dremont in her bedroom and then the crowded, crowded room scene. What Groucho does is he dances down the hallway. I swear the way he dances down the hallway, I was like, oh, Jack Nicholson just straight up took that for the Joker. You know what? I'm sure that that is true because now that you say it, I think there are a lot of similarities between that character of the Joker that he played and, you know, this kind of performative version that Groucho Marx played. I wonder if there's anything ever written about that, where he got his inspirations from. I wonder. I mean, I don't know if you felt this way, but when I was watching A Night at the Opera, I felt like I saw more DNA from this movie in modern comedy than in Duck Soup. And mm. I really like Duck Soup. Yeah. But I felt like there were more moments in here where I was like, I know a movie where the director loves this film and must have watched it a bunch and a bunch. And it would be random stuff. Like, there was a moment where I was like, people who made The Lion King, I bet they really love this movie because they do this song in here called The Cosicosa. And the way that The Cosicosa goes, I was like, this is a this is Hakuna Matata. You cannot convince me that there is not DNA from Cosicosa 
in Hakuna Matata. Let's listen to that. These funny little words don't really mean a thing. It's just a phrase that nowadays Italians love to sing. Così, cosa. It's a wonderful word, la 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 la. If anyone asks you how you are, it's proper to say, Così, cosa. Così, cosa. If a lady should ask you if you care, you don't have to start a love affair. Say, così, cosa. Does it mean yes? No. Does it mean no? Well, yes and no. Interesting. I, I hear it. I hear it. Right? The idea of like, here's a song about a word. We're going to define the word. It's the whole lyrics of it. Yeah. So are you saying that this film trumps Duck Soup for you? Well, right. I mean, here we get into the tough conversation. Do you, do you think that there should be two Marx Brothers movies on the AFI list? I was thinking about this a lot. And my quick answer is no. Yeah, me too. Because it's the same characters. It's just bits that are different. I think that we recognize them. And then that allows someone else to get on the list too. By the way, somebody from comedy now, like let's just like, let's open up the world. I think when we are talking about this list, we're saying more influences, more color, more uh, sides. And I don't think that two Marx Brothers need to be on the list. It doesn't mean that one of them is bad. It just... Why are we doing it? What what are we learning from this that we don't get from Duck Soup? Yeah, it felt sort of like people couldn't decide which Marx brother. So like just a group of people voted for one, a group of people voted for another, and they both got on. Because everyone's yeah. like, we have to have a Marx brother list. Well, look, I definitely believe that Duck Soup is a better film. But that kind of plays to the, my sensibility. I also see why this is a more popular film. I also see why this is a, a more not family friendly, but just a more palatable film. It has a beginning, middle and end. Um, and I think that that kind of judging on sensibility is the reason why there probably are two Marx Brothers films on here, because you can't say that one is better than the other. It's what your sensibility dictates to a certain degree. It's true. I mean, I'm kind of torn because my gut would be Duck Soup should go on. But also, I know that part of why my gut is saying that is because Duck Soup is a political comedy, and I just really like political comedies, you know? Right. And I'm like, oh, yes, of course the one that is more serious, the more politically of the comedies should go on. And I want to then I want to pause and say, Amy, come on. Like, that. then I'm just falling into the same stereotypes that make everything on the list a little bit the same, a little bit worry, a little bit dramatic-y. Yeah, and but, I don't want to make myself have to do that. No, but I think it's interesting – Whenever you kind of dissect comedy, what people find funny, you can't say that what someone finds funny isn't funny. You know, I know a lot of people give a lot of shit to like Larry the Cable Guy or, you know, Jeff Foxworth or Dane Cook. But at the end of the day, those guys are selling out arenas and people are loving it. They're not there under duress. There's a reason why The Death of Stalin is a comedy and Dumb and Dumber is a comedy. They're two incredibly different films, but they they don't really share much more than just the label of comedy. You know what I'm saying? It's a comedy is like genres of music. You know, you you can kind of float in between and find what you like. You know, so I think. I mean, of all the modern comedies that weren't represented, you I would put an argument out there for there's something about Mary if we took away one of these. Or something Jim Carrey. Something Jim Carrey should be here. But I think it's a lot harder to judge comedy, especially on a list, because it's hard to get people to agree. Dramas, there is a very easy way. That movie was emotional. It made me feel. It's the reason why I think our culture is weighed down in this 
terrible term that I hate, which is dramedy, where it's like it's neither funny nor dramatic. It's just a kind of middling thing because no one wants to make a choice one way or the other. It's like, you know, because it's easier to do a half hour show that's a dramedy. So it's not judged as a comedy. And then you're in this zone where it's like, well, what are we making anymore? We're just making something that's palatable to people. And I think that that's a mistake. I'd rather have shows that make bold swings. Yeah, I mean... My gut usually goes towards really dark, dark, dark black comedies. I love a dark black comedy because I feel like I do like dramedies. I'll stick out for a little bit, but I do think there are a lot of bad dramedies where it's like, oh, somebody's cat died, but let me have a wistful smile and music where you're not sure what to do. You know, movies that I grew up on had drama and comedy and it's kind of infused together. And that's good. I just think that it's become more of a like a lazy crutch for people. It's like, well, we don't need to make that scene funny. We're not always trying to do that. It's like, well, then give me the drama that actually gets me to the next scene. Then if you're balancing the weight of it, I'm fine. I just think it's become a catch all for things that are neither here nor there. Yeah, I do want just everybody in general to be making more choices. I think it just goes back to say that comedies are very hard to judge. To get a room of 10 people to agree on something, when I've tested my own comedy shows, it is amazing to sit behind that glass and see what people are saying. The room is split 50-50. I remember, again, to go back to Human Giant, uh, when we were testing that show, we did these characters called Illusionators. They were kind of Chris Angel magicians. And people in the room, half of them got it, and the other half were like, I don't think the magic is good enough. Well, well, it's it's not a magic show. It's a sketch about magicians. And they're like, the magic should be better. And then the note from MTV was, (laughs) the note from MTV was, can we make the magic better? And then there was another note, which was like, we did this sketch called Hot Air Balloon Cops, which is about cops who did high-speed pursuits in hot air balloons. And the executive at MTV was like, it's just not believable. Why would they ever use a hot air balloon to chase down a speeding car? It's like, that's the joke. And it's so hard. And that's why we get into this world of like Twitter where you can't read what's sarcasm, what's not. And I think we've lost that sense of, you know, we want to try to figure out what's right so we can note what's right. We can't note what's funny. And I don't know. I just I worry about the state of comedy sometimes. And I'm so happy when I see a very hard comedy, whether it is a show like Great News or, you know, I just I just am excited to see a good comedy. But I think it's also the most divisive thing that we have. There's very few comedies that everyone agrees on. Yeah, when people just plant their feet in the ground and say, that is what we are. I'm not even going to be like a parable about politics. Yeah. I am a comedy, full stop. Yeah. Even having two Marx Brothers films on here is a safety net. It's like, well, we're not going to make a real choice. We're just going to pick another one of the flavor that we already have. It's like, instead of taking like a scoop of vanilla and chocolate, it's like, I'll take two scoops of vanilla, please. Not saying the Marx Brothers are vanilla. It's the same flavor. All right, two scoops of Tutti Fruity. But yeah, no, and there also is this thing that I think with the distance of of time, we elevate the Marx Brothers to being safe, to being Mm -hmm. in that like, oh, it's Schindler's List. It's very serious because, you know, it's like this is black and white. Everybody knows they're famous. You don't feel like you're making a wrong choice. Whereas if you casted a vote for uh, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, you'd be like, what on earth? Am I ruining my life? I am, by the way, not saying Ace Ventura, Pet Detective should be on the list. But how about Groundhog Day should be on this list, right? Easily Groundhog Day should be on this list. Absolutely. I think that you can't argue that at all. But I mean. Michael Shannon's debut? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, look, if you like just simply Google like the best comedies of all time, Airplane, Groundhog Day, Ghostbusters, Anchorman, Animal House, Spinal Tap, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Dr. Strangelove. Like that's like a crazy list. 
of very different genres, yeah. very different styles. Only and, one of which is on the list. And uh, by the way, Animal House gets on this list over my dead body. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with that. Animal House, I think, is very funny, but I don't I don't think Animal House is as funny as other films on this, the list I just read. Even hearing you talk about, like, gauging audiences with this, I mean, we were talking about how the Marx Brothers, like, showed this around to a bunch of people. Like, they did the live act. They also did a test screening right before. They did, one, a test screening in Long Beach, and then they did a test screening in San Diego. When they did the Long Beach screening, nobody laughed, and everybody hated it. And Groucho was like, well, we screwed up. I guess this whole thing is completely done. And then they played the movie again the next night in San Diego, and everybody loved it. And he was like, we have no idea to this day what happened in Long Beach. Groucho's theory was that the mayor of Long Beach had just died. But nobody knows. Really it, just like, took that to heart. Yeah, but if they'd only had one screening, there's a world where this movie never came out. Well, you know, I also don't believe in testing because there was a famous story. I remember everyone talking about it. They're like, guys— the zookeeper with Kevin James is testing at 100%. It's going to be the biggest comedy of all time. I remember that was the rumor around Hollywood. It was like, <gasps> not was the rumor. rumor? Uh, not, sorry. Hey, guys, you want to hear some cool gossip? The <laughs> zookeeper is testing at 100%. Like I, I, because I think that people feel like they can judge it. Like I mean, I know that you know people, all my friends, and I've been in testing – you know, it's a very precarious thing to get a high score in a comedy. You're normally, your best comedies are hovering in the 70s. Whoa, really? You know, it, it's just hard because, again, we're talking about the same things that are influencing. So if you can get your film into about the, you know, the high 60s, low 70s, like you're in a pretty good sweet spot. Like that's where movies like Step Brothers is testing. It's like, yes, it's working. It's it's not, you know, 100% recommend, but it's it's really kicking in. And whenever you hear 100%, and I've heard that with a handful of films, that were complete flops, which makes me believe that those films must fall more in the Thalberg camp of it hits a story, it hits a plot, it hits a character, and it kind of dilutes the pure humor of it. It's like people can relate to a comedy too much. All right, guys, well, we're going to do something a little special for our next guest. Uh, you know him. You've heard of him. We've been talking about him this whole episode. Let's talk to Groucho Marx. Let's get him on the phone. Okay, guys, we have a very special guest right now on the phone. Let's just say hi to Groucho Marx. Hey, Groucho. How are you, Amy? This is a real treat. Yours. Oh, my God. How? This is... I'm, I'm, I'm shaking. Hello, Groucho. I'm... You should be shaken and stirred. <laughs> if that's the case, get off of here now. <laughs> I love you. Can't you say what I'm saying to you? I love you. You take me and I'll take a vacation. I need a vacation. We're going to get married. I'm married. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to ask you a question now. Did, uh, did you miss working with Zeppo when you did uh, an, A Night at the Opera without him? I didn't know Zeppo was ever around in the first place. <laughs> Listen, it just means more money for me. Simple as that, Amy. What about I Margaret? Mean, after all, Zeppo was a great talent. How many different ways are there to say yes, after all? Whoa. How are family reunions at your house? Nothing but sheer joy. I'm never there. <laughs> I was going to ask you the same question, by the way. Oh, they're bereft. I never get an invitation, Amy. Just once, just once invite me. Please come over, I think. Let me know where and when, and I'll make sure I'm out of town. <laughs> Listen, so I was just saying that I'm kind of mad at you because I love Margaret Dumont, and I don't like that you say that she doesn't have a sense of humor. No, she never understood our jokes. She used to say to me, Julius, what are they laughing at? 
I don't know if that was her just now. Was that you or the was that you or the duck? There you go again. I think that's Harpo. <laughs> I love I I loved working with Margo Dumont. How about, well, I think it's time for Frank. I don't know about you. I think it's time for Frank too because I can't I can't <laughs> breathe. Uh, hey everybody, that's the best me. I could do after a peanut butter sandwich. I would have warmed up a little more for you. Amy. How are you? What a Groucho! I'm great. This is Frank Ferrande. He is the number one Groucho Marx impersonator in the world. Hello, Frank. Hello, Amy. Thank you for having me on. I'm so happy just, to have you. I'm happy to be here. I just celebrated. I'm just celebrating this year my 35th uh, year doing my show an evening with Groucho and I just got to do it actually this week which was a real which a real treat well I want to give you um, some of your credentials real fast you have met both Groucho's daughter and Groucho's son and they have vouched that you are a terrific Groucho like what what was what were those meetings like well when I was in in, in college when I was at the University of Southern California I performed uh, an evening with I was a student in theater there and I performed the show an evening with Groucho and it was a senior project. I received eight units. And I invited everyone that knew Groucho and loved Groucho to the show. And Arthur Marx showed up, uh, who was Groucho Marx's son, and Miriam Marx Allen showed up, who was Groucho Marx's daughter, uh, two of these key people in Groucho's life. And after the show, and also someone who showed up there who was uh, relevant to our uh, conversation about A Night at the Opera is Maury Riskin, who co-wrote A Night at the Opera. And also co-wrote Animal Crackers and did the screenplay for the Coconut Street, great Marx Brothers films. The three of them showed up at my college production. And Maury Riskin was 89 at the time. But to get back to Arthur, Arthur saw the show that night and said to me, Frank, if I ever do another show, he's a playwright and a, and a writer in general. Uh, he said, I'd like to use you. And within a year, I was performing in Groucho Marx's. I was performing as Groucho Marx from age 15 to 85 in Groucho, A Life and Review in the show that Arthur Marx wrote. And I was friends for Arthur for 25 years, and as I was, for th- I was friends with Miriam Marx, Alan, for 30 years, and we were, we were family. Well, inhabiting him, I mean, how do you feel like his mind worked? Because when I watch him just go, I can't even keep mm-hmm. up as an audience member. So what is it like thinking so fast, being so fast? How do you think his brain was? It's, that's a great question. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he never made it past the sixth grade, Amy. And he, there was a certain amount of shame, I think, he felt in regard to his lack of formal education. And as his life and as his life progressed and he started interacting with writers and intellects, he wanted to be in the same game. And so he was basically, he was, he was self-educated. Uh, Arthur Mark Scratch's son told me he kept a dictionary in his car. I have one of his dictionaries from 19, from the 1930s, actually. He read constantly, Amy. He was always, he he had multiple publications, newspapers, magazines. He knew what was going on in terms of popular culture and and society, and and was up to date on world affairs. So he had a finely tuned mind. He also grew up in vaudeville and studied other comedians from the time he he was 14 years old, Amy, when he went on the stage. His mother pushed him, Minnie, uh, sent him out on the road. Imagine a 14-year-old, you know, playing through the hinterlands of, of the U.S. in 1905. And he was there, he's surviving. You're, you're surviving on your wits, but you're also studying all acts that were around you. The, the crummy ones, the, the, most, the most revered ones, and he was absorbing all of that. Well, here's a question I'm curious about. What do you make of this theory that Margaret Dumont was in a way Groucho channeling his emotions towards his mom? 
it's an interesting thing uh, that the, there may have been some. There certainly a, seems to be a bit of a misogynist streak in Groucho. A lot of resentment that he had toward his mom. And uh, Groucho used to say about his mother, "My mother treated all of us boys equally with contempt." <laughs> uh, Groucho never really had a childhood. Groucho was, you know, as I mentioned, was on stage. He wanted to be a doctor and then a writer. Apparently, from what I've read and what I've heard from family members is that she made it clear that he was the least favorite, certainly of the three. Chico, who was the Italian-accented, piano-playing member of the, uh, of the, of the Marks Brothers team, he was the firstborn, and, then, and, and he was the apple of his mother's eye. There was actually a, a kid born, a child born prior to Chico, named Manfred, who died in infancy. And the theory is that all the love that... that that uh, many, their mother had for Manfred, Manfred, who was transferred to Chico, who who was a, a, comp- a compulsive gambler. He was shooting craps as an eight, nine-year-old. Chico was shooting craps as an eight-year-old? Yeah, as a, as a boy. Uh, and kind of challenging the love of his family and pretty much saying, you know, because he could do no wrong. Uh, Harpo comes along as the and is the the love of of the father Sam Marks, who was nicknamed Frenchie because he was from that region of of Europe, Alsace Lorraine, and um, and then Groucho was the was 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 born, and he was very uh, he was Semitic looking. He had kinky black hair, and the mother would try to straighten his hair and and referred to Groucho uh, in German, I believe, as as the jealous one, the dark one. Wow, and. Uh, he was aware that he was not the favorite and he was a, more of a brooding kid who loved to read. Like, are there still things you wish you could ask him? I, it, that would be a difficult question to ask someone like that who would, would probably make a joke about it. I think, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure how you would actually muster up the courage to ask a question, a personal question like that. With, and I don't know if anyone ever had in my research. Um, at the end of his life, he lived almost to 87. He died in 1977. He was, he wanted to, he really wanted, he was talking about love and wanting, you know, and wanting love and needing love. And uh, I have a great deal of empathy for him because as I see it, he, he tried his best. He came from very, very difficult beginnings. Uh, and there was no net in, the, in in their life. You know, there's no such thing as a credit card or, you know, they're doing it to survive. They're performing to survive. And that's how they got to be so great. When, when, when you have to succeed, when you have to make an audience laugh, um, you, to eat, you, you make it happen. It's either sink or swim. And the, I relate to that spirit. I've always seen performances as, as, as that it's, it, it's, you want to kill the audience. There's a reason we say you want to kill them, slaughter them, murder them. Uh, it's either it's either them or or you, and you want them to laugh because uh, I won't work if an audience isn't laughing. And I'm kind of an odd entity in a way myself, and you know, an unusual performer in that I get to work all the time with with that character and other characters. I work in the in the circ world too with my own creation, and I've done that for 15 years, 1,200 performances. So in a way, I'm a new vaudevillian, and I and I think as time goes by, I'm able to relate more to this this man that I'm portraying on a regular basis. Thinking about how hard it was for him, you know, to start his career back then, today with the way that comedy is, the way people participate in comedy, all the different things you do if you're a comedian in the year, you know, 2019. 
What do you think he would be like today, or what do you think he'd be making jokes about? I think uh, he would be all over the political scene. He'd be all over Trump. Um, he would be dealing with the social issues. Um, he didn't back off. As he got older, he was very clear about his feelings in terms of what was going on and in, in socially, politically. And I think his comedy would have been in the vein of what you get with Trevor Noah, what John Stewart did, uh, what John Oliver does. He, he wasn't afraid to comment. And in a way, he was he was making fun of all of us, of, of, of how we behave. I remember when he passed away, I was a, a boy, teenager, I was 14. I kept scrapbooks on his life. And the, the Rolling Stone headline was... Uh, Groucho was funny, but also a little dangerous, but also a bit scary. His, he was he was scary. He was dangerous, and I try to bring that. You know, I don't I don't like, you know, the idea of doing this. This that this my show is a tribute show or an impersonator show it doesn't interest me. Uh, I like to. I'm trying to conjure up his his the beast that was Groucho, the the the, the Groucho that's that scared audiences, that surprised audiences. I love that. Well, Frank, it's been so fun talking to you, and I feel like I should let you say goodbye to our listeners, both as Frank and as Groucho. <laughs> <laughs> well, Amy, thank you for your time. And as Groucho would say, hello, I must be going. I cannot stay. I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came. It's just the same. I must be going. Bye-bye. Bye, Amy. Goodbye. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> All right, so Amy, this movie is 85 on the list. Duck Soup, 60 on the list. I think we've both agreed that there should only be one Marx Brothers film on this list. But do you think, at this rate, is 85 too high, too low for this film? Hmm, 85 seems about right to me. I think if we were to leave it on the list, 85 works for me too. But I am saying, strike it from the list. Keep Duck Soup in the mix, I enjoyed Duck Soup. I've watched Duck Soup more. That's my own personal opinion about it. You know what? Because I want to watch the world burn. Yeah. I'll say keep this one. Keep an eye at the opera. All right. Because I just like, the moments I left, I was blissful. I was just like, <laughs> I like I it. I was so happy when it worked. What, you know what? Let's actually do a little poll online. We will go on our Twitter page and we'll set up a poll. Which one should belong on the list? We want to hear from you about that. Now, Amy, you said this movie was much better received and you know besides that one long beach screening were there any negative reviews of this film there was and they're the kind of review that i feel like you almost see for comedies today where somebody's like i laughed a lot i feel really bad about it i'm going to take it out on this movie in my review because i am wrestling with the fact that i laughed at this and liked it and so this review comes from the new republic he says in terms of rhyme, reason, good taste, and formal plot structure, A Night at the Opera is a sieve, a leaky ship, and cocked to the guards with hokum. It has three of the Marx Brothers and absolutely no pride. Wow. It seems thrown together, made up just as they went along out of everybody else's own head. It steals sequences from Renee Claire. It drives off with whole wagon loads of, key, of the Keystone lot without so much as putting the fence back up. It has more familiar faces in the way of gags and situations than a college reunion. In short, A Night at the Opera is a night with the Marx Brothers, who troop through this impossible hour and a half of picture with such speed and clatter as to pin up a record for one of the most hilarious collections of bad jokes I've nearly laughed myself sick over. 
He then goes on to say that, like, this picture has no staying power. He says, it's done the minute that it fades on the screen, but the boys themselves are still with us. And I estimate for at least an average of a period of 10 days to three weeks as the picture gets around before the American public will be able to open its garbage can in the morning and not duck, anticipating that a Marx Brother will pop out and cloud it over the head with a sack of tomatoes. What a crazy review. It seems like this person was ready to dance on their grave after Duck Soup was a flop and just consider them over it. You know, it feels like one of those reviews, and we've talked about this a little bit, where you come in with such a preconceived notion of what it's going to be that you don't allow yourself to experience the film. It's like, nope, they're over, they're done. I already have half of this written in my head. I just have to just put the specifics in of this film yeah. to, to get my it review It feels out. like there's just like a like baggage in that. It's the way that I feel sometimes when I read like a review of an Amy Schumer or like a Rebel Wilson film. Yeah. Because if I keep hearing from people that they just don't like them and I like them. Both. Right. You know, but when anybody reviews when there's films, it's always like this, oh, I'm mad that this works, but it, this worked fine. You know, like well, it's like they're mad. Yeah. I just wish that people would judge film kind of the way that they view, you know, female superhero movies with a real open mind and, oh and really just kind of trying to embrace like what's going on. Um, Amy, you have to tell me there is a Simpsons stateroom scene. I, I, I would be remiss. Amy, I would be shocked and awed if there was no Simpsons stateroom scene. There's not. What? <laughs> How could they not do that scene? There's not. Um, you know, two of its biggest References in pop culture, though. I'll start with the first one. Alone. Oh, da, 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 yeah. da. Made it into an episode of The Twilight Zone. This is from Ooh. the episode Mind and Matter, where a man really wants to be alone and gets his wish. For love, um, and that's from the new Jordan Peele Twilight Zone, right? <laughs> and the second thing is... Gosh, you know, it's been a long time since we talked about Rami Malek and Bohemian Rhapsody. Queen, <laughs> of course, named the album that Bohemian Rhapsody is on after this film, A Night at the Opera, because they were fighting a lot, of course. You right. might know that if you watched Oscar-nominated film Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, and one of the things that they would do to cheer up is they would watch the Marx Brothers. And then, get this, when Queen came to America in the 70s, they met Groucho Marx. Uh, because Groucho Marx had like written them and said, I really love your album names. Because, of course, not only did they do A Night at the Opera, they did A Day at the Races. And Groucho Marx played them a song on guitar. And it was all really wonderful. And I found a little clip of Roger Taylor talking about their magical day with wow. the Marx. Uh, I think Roy, our, our producer, had got the Marx Brothers movie, A Night at the Opera. And Fred and I looked at one another and went, oh, it's a good, good title. Good title, because we'd just been doing this sort of mock operatic thing for Bohemian Rhapsody. And then I think, I think everybody just sort of thought, yeah, good title, good title. In those days, there were things called telexes. And uh, Groucho telexed us, and so we, I don't know, somebody set up a meeting and we were invited for lunch, so we went to Groucho Marx's house for lunch. Well, actually, three of us did, John, John chickened out. He sang a couple of songs for us, uh, Lydia, that encyclopedia, and, and uh, something about a woman from Omaha, and then he said, well, you're singers, fucking sing. So, and, and we went, oh, yeah, oh, couldn't. We know, possibly we don't have a guitar, you know, no instrument. Oh, no, we got one here. So they produced this um, Spanish guitar out of nowhere. So uh, we, we sang 39 for Groucho Marx. I love that. I love that he 
was still kind of with it. And, you know, as I look at Groucho Marx, we were watching this here in the studio, that uh, clip. I have a question for you, and you may know the answer to this. So Groucho Marx in these films painted on his mustache. It, it, you know, it clearly is like this kind of grease paint across his face. But later in life, he grew the mustache. And it's an interesting thing. I wonder, you know, if it was to always be recognized, you know, why wouldn't you grow it when you were doing these films? You know, I, I guess maybe the grease paint was more synonymous and he had to look a certain way, but it, it's a funny idea that he, it feels to me like someone who didn't want to stop being recognized as Groucho Marx. That's interesting. Almost like he wanted to stop at the time when he was making movies, if he wanted to go to the grocery store. Right. But then when he was ready to be noticed more, when he was like worried people were forgetting about him, he got the mustache back. Yeah, I love it. That's, All right. So that's kind of sweet. You know, Paul, I would be remiss if I didn't try to fit A Night in the Opera into my theory of operatics that we have been exploring on this show, which is in every movie where there's a scene where people are appreciating opera, does it mean that opera is a civilizing force? We were talking about this oh, with Shawshank. Yes. We were talking about this with some other film that I forgot. Here again, we have this scene of opera. It's what closes the movie. Everybody watches opera, and the Marx Brothers like it. Listen to this. Hey, you hear that? That's real singing. Even Harpo is entranced. I believe that this fits my theory. Opera does good for people in movies, that opera is basically the vitamin that makes everyone happy and calm for at least a minute. I love it. It is uh, the vitamin O. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Paul. Well, that is our last Marx Brothers movie on the list. We will be saying goodbye to the Marx Brothers now, if they let us, if they're not like at the door, ready to bang us with mallets and... Jump out of our trash cans with tomatoes. Yeah. Did they invent hitting your alarm clock with a mallet in this movie, or did that already exist? I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea. Should we roll the die? Let's roll the die. Number 51. Which is... What is it? Oh, Amy, I love it. What West Side it? Story. Oh, I want to live in the unspooled studio doing a podcast on <laughs> West Side Story. Now, is this the Steven Spielberg version or are we going to watch the original one? Steven Spielberg, we've had enough of him. What are you talking about? <laughs> Another one get on the list. Let's knock off the old one. Get the Spielberg one oh, on here. God. Look at the pre-production notes on the I'll list. I'll get my switchblade out. We're not going this route. Uh, Amy, I have a confession. Never saw it. What? Never have seen West Side Story. Don't even really know what it's about. I think is the Jets. The Jets are in this. Just, just watch a couple. Oh nope, never mind. I was about to say watch a Michael Jackson video. Take it back. Uh. <laughs> it's basically Benny and the Jets. Oh, all right. Yeah. I like a little Elton John. You know what, Amy? I was so impressed with your singing right there. <laughs> you know, you were not. <laughs> I was indeed. Why don't we make our call to action for the next episode a group sing-along? We would love you to sing America. Try to sing as much of it as you can, and we can do like a super cut version of you all singing America. I think that would be really fun. Wow. It'll be really like America's next unspooled singer. <laughs> I'm into this. You can give us a call at 747. Would it be Unspool's Next America singer? Oh, I like Whoa. that. Whoa, hey. You can give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. We want to hear you sing. Please, please 
T-Pain, Colin, you were so great on The Masked Singer. We got to have you on this show. Um, and as always, you know, we announce um, all of our films ahead of time on our Twitter page and on our website. And if you have any connection to these films, if you know anyone in these films, directors, actors, writers, uh, reach out to us. We are always looking for ways to find interesting people to talk to. We have an amazing talent booker here, Hannah, who does a bang up job. But sometimes Hannah, you might, thank you. Thank you, Hannah. But sometimes people might be like, oh, my gosh, uh, Groucho Marx. He's my brother. Let's get him on the show. Uh, so, no, we would appreciate it. If you uh, are on the lookout for us, that would be really, really helpful. And we want to make sure that you check out our amazing poster designed by Scott C., who does these great prints called The Great Showdowns. You can go to podswag.com for an amazingly cool um I guess play along poster because you can check off the movies as you watch them. 100 movies, 100 different little pieces of artwork. And for West Side Story, it's a little uh, mini fire escape. So head on over to podswag.com. You can get this poster, which I love. It's hanging in my house right now, and I'm checking it off as we go down this list. Amy, anything to plug? Uh, yeah. My new – wait, this is coming up um, next week? Yeah. Next week. Okay. Uh, yeah. The first episode of my new miniseries, Zoom, came out yesterday. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I've been working really, 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 really hard on it. So if you want to know everything about movie aliens, starting Ooh. from Melia's A Trip to the Moon to today, we're covering it. It's awesome. I Is Mac and me in there? <laughs> I do ask a biologist a question that I tried to ask when we did our E.T. episode, yeah. which is, where do you think E.T. came from? Oh, wow. uh, like judging by his physiology, physi- I can't really say that word, but right. judging by his body, judging by his body. Right. And I don't judge anybody bod. by their body. I <laughs> well, don't I do. <laughs> I judge E.T. by his body. Tell me about E.T.'s home planet. I got to ask all the questions I've ever wanted to ask anybody about aliens. And it's really, 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 really fun. And there's a little bit of Abbott and Costello go to Mars in there. Wow. Amy, I am going to like and subscribe. Uh, and also, uh, if you uh, want to keep up with me, you can check out Black Monday, which is a comedy and a drama, but not a dramedy in the sense of the way that I was speaking about it. Uh, we are kind of finishing up our first season now. We're in the final stretch. Definitely check us out on Showtime every Sunday night at 10 p.m. And if you're into comics, uh, my comic book, Cosmic Ghost Rider Destroys Marvel History. Book one is out on the shelves right now. Book two comes out next month, all about Spider-Man. Pre-order it now. Amy, that brings us to the end of the episode. I'm getting excited to watch West Side Story with you. Cannot wait to talk about it. Oh my God, you're going to wear like a swishy skirt. You're going to come in here all excited. I cannot wait. All right, we'll see you next week for West Side Story. I want to say thank you again to our sponsor for this episode, Fracture, the website that takes your pictures and makes them art. You know their art. You knew they were special when you took them. You thought, I love my friend right now in this pose. I love this sandwich. I'd like to hang the sandwich in my kitchen and look at the sandwich every day and say, make yourself a beautiful sandwich just like that one. Fracture, they're just fun. They're easy. They're not that expensive. And they are just a great way of decorating your house and making it feel incredibly personal. So if you want to figure out how to take the photos from your phone and turn them into art, art that is printed with ink on glass, looking beautiful, go to FractureMe.com slash Unspooled. That is FractureMe.com slash Unspooled for a special discount on your very first Fracture order. Do not forget to pick Unspooled in the one-question survey after checkout, and that way you get your discount, and happy decorating.
Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season 3 has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, Season 3 is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Jesus! I mean, Jazos! (laughs) Ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season 3 of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 